Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. Trick or treat. And welcome to Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. We've got a bit of a spooky episode on tap for you this week as we game out some political nightmare scenarios. Heading into 2020, what are Democrats most worried about? The fact that Donald Trump could win re-election. I think a possibility that a lot of people have avoided grappling with on that side of the aisle so far. But we got a piece looking at exactly that. We're going to talk to the author. We're also going to talk to one of our reporters about Republicans' biggest nightmare scenario. Donald Trump not only losing, but losing big because he's leaked support from some key constituencies that have buoyed him up till now. We've got some new polling and new reporting on that as well. But first, we're going to talk to Politico's senior legal affairs contributor, Josh Gerstein, about a different sort of spooky story. He's going to tell us about the legal exposure for a man really tied up in the middle of everything that's gone on with the Trump administration over the last few years, but especially the recent developments and investigations into Ukraine. And that's his personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani. Josh, good to see you. Hey, Scott. Always good to see you again. So you've got a piece out today. Uh, that's Thursday. The headline is, Is Rudy Giuliani Going to Jail? So I wanted to have you in and ask you, is Rudy Giuliani going to jail? Uh, not right away. <laughs> not uh, And maybe not in the way that some uh, people think. Uh, there's been a lot of fevered speculation out there, and that's part of the reason we, we did the piece. Um, I think there's sort of a liberal fantasy. Um, you know, it used to be that uh, – uh, Carl Rove was going to be marched out of the Bush White House, uh, frog marched out of the Bush White House in handcuffs. And now I think the current version of that, uh, short of Trump's impeachment, is that Rudy Giuliani will be marched somewhere in handcuffs, which would be particularly ironic for him since he literally created the modern um, image of white collar defendants being a uh, so-called perp walked uh, in handcuffs. Now, when he was U.S. attorney, when he was U.S. attorney in New York and Southern District of New York, and was kind of a uh, crusader uh, against various sorts of uh, white collar crime um, by stockbrokers and things along those lines, he really became identified with that TV image of uh, someone being walked uh, out of a car or precinct house or somewhere. Um, you know, into court uh, by a couple of FBI agents in suits. So let's let's step way back here. What, what exactly what's in the picture here? Because I think you know, for the past few years, Giuliani uh, has been most identified with his role as uh, President Trump's personal attorney, and he's he's been all over the media uh, in that role uh, around the Mueller probe and all sorts of other things. But lately, we've seen story after story uh, about him and associates of him kind of roped into um, shady business around Ukraine. So, so you know, you mentioned, Scott, that Rudy's been on TV a lot over the last couple of years, like a, a real lot. <laughs> that so surreptitious Rudy, Rudy, illegal I wanna, transfer I want to move the conversation forward because we've hit this and we've had you on for months talking about this. So we've established I mean, he's been on TV. So you did ask Ukraine to look into Joe Biden. Of course I did. 
You just said you didn't. Shut up, Shut up. Okay, hold on. Shut up. Hold on. You don't know what you're talking about. Bring in President Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani. I'm the president's lawyer. He's been texting with me, other reporters, uh, into the wee hours of the night, day after day, uh, for it does seem like the last two years of the Trump presidency. Um, and before we get into what Rudy might have done wrong, potentially, I guess one of the questions that brings up about anyone is how are they actually making a living? Like it turns out that Trump wasn't paying him to do all this. So uh, he must have had other private clients uh, that were paying him decent sums of money uh, you know, you know, to keep afloat. Um, it's probably also worth mentioning he's going through uh, another divorce uh, from his most recent uh, wife and there are financial elements to that. So he's not somebody who um, uh, doesn't need some uh, cash flow. And it turns out that he's had some rather interesting clients over the last couple of years, at least the ones we know about. There are probably ones we don't know about. And I think they're the ones that have um, contributed to the pickle that Giuliani finds himself in right now. All right. So tell us, tell us about that a little bit. Well, the biggest problem Giuliani is facing is that a couple of his clients slash associates slash colleagues, uh, uh, Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, uh, were indicted earlier this month. They were um, getting on a plane at Dulles Airport or about to get on a plane at Dulles Airport for Vienna. Uh, uh, the FBI, others make a lot out of the fact that they had one-way tickets and they were arrested uh, on campaign finance charges, a variety of charges that they uh, had some sort of backer in Ukraine and or Russia who helped them come up with hundreds of thousands of dollars that they contributed to uh, pro-Trump super PAC, to um, Representative Pete Sessions, uh, and then also to some, I think, state and local uh, races in Nevada. So they, they're they accused of laundering foreign money into American politicians. Right. Accounts. They're accused of well, what they call straw or conduit donations where you have one person donate on behalf of another, which uh, is illegal. It's a form of fraud or lying to the government about who's making the donation. And then they're also explicitly accused of routing money from foreign, one or more foreign nationals into U.S. campaigns, which is specifically illegal both at the federal level and at the state level under federal law. So um, that's the the charge that they're uh, facing at the moment. But some of the wording in that indictment, and I get into this in my story, talks about them having an unnamed sort of benefactor who's some kind of Ukrainian government official or maybe more than one Ukrainian government official as well as a Russian uh, businessman uh, and that they were the source of some of the funds and were approving some of the things that uh, Parnas and Fruman were doing, uh, including advocating for the removal of the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, which is something that Giuliani was also doing at the same time. So a lot of lawyers look at that and say, gee, you're working closely with these two men. Um, they're accused of acting for a foreign official uh, or a foreign national in some sort of pressure campaign in the U.S. of a political nature, it starts to sound awfully close to the line of you being an agent of a foreign government for which you're supposed to to register. It's the kind of thing, one of the things that got uh, Paul Manafort in trouble, for example. And this is something we've seen a, a, a big uptick in uh, prosecutions of uh, people for not not registering for, for lobbying on behalf of a, a foreign government, foreign foreign entity, but not, not all of them successful. Well, the feds have announced a big effort to try to crack down on this. There's been a lot of criticism from the Justice Department Inspector General and from lawmakers up on Capitol Hill over the last few years, uh, largely dating back to the Russian 
you know, Russian influence campaign in the 2016 presidential race, but also for a number of other reasons, uh, people wanting crackdowns on on China, on others uh, that have advocated for the Justice Department to step up its enforcement. Uh, it's not just criminal cases. It's also demanding that people uh, register. Sometimes it's civil lawsuits. Um, but what I point out in my piece is that a couple of the more high-profile cases of this nature that the Justice Department has brought in the last year, year and a half or so, they've kind of fallen flat on their face. And uh, one of the former senior prosecutors I talked to uh, said that there would be extra pressure testing uh, of any potential charges against Giuliani because of these um, high-profile uh, failures of the Justice Department in the last, really in the last couple of months. Um, both trials that I covered, one was against Greg Craig, the former uh, White House counsel, and another one was against a man uh, who's a business, an American businessman of uh, Iranian descent um, na- named Bijan Rafikian, uh, who went on trial in uh, Virginia. A jury actually convicted him, but uh, a few weeks after the conviction, the judge threw the case out. So the upshot being basically that this is a lot harder to to prove in a court of law than it might sound suspicious on paper. Sure. I mean, look, like there's several – gray area but not necessarily legal right. jeopardy. There's two questions. One is legally speaking, are you required to register? And that's really a distinct question from can you be charged with a crime for not having registered? The way the law is written, it's designed so that people can't sort of accidentally stumble into a criminal charge. They have to know that they're supposed to register. You have they to have be trying to, to mislead, basically. Deliberately refuse to register. Some would say it almost requires an email or something along those lines where your lawyer says, hey, you know, you need to file those forms to register as a foreign agent. And you're like, hey, you know what? I've decided I'm not going to do it to make <laughs> extra money. Like that's the kind of proof that prosecutors are looking for. And maybe you don't quite need that. But one of the problems they ran into in the Greg Craig and the Bijan Rafakian cases was that they didn't have that. They had sort of supposition. They had a testimony from convicted felons, people like Rick Gates, you know, like, well, here's what we were doing. Uh, but they didn't really have solid proof admission uh, by the defendant that that's what was going on. Uh, and in both cases, it was found to be uh, lacking. And so the question in Giuliani's situation would be, uh, you know, is there solid proof that when he was pressuring, for example, to remove the ambassador to Ukraine, uh, that he was doing so on behalf of some foreign national or foreign government? Uh, or is it, as Giuliani says, uh, that he was actually conducting this campaign on behalf of one of his other clients, the one who was not paying him, President Trump. And, you know, people may or may not find that plausible, but it's a the kind of defense that defendants have found pretty successful in these cases in the last few months. That's a good point. That actually brings me to the next question I was wondering about. Does all of this uh, heat and noise around Giuliani, has that affected his standing with Trump and with the White House at all? Or is he still kind of in, in with the president as much as he ever has been? It's definitely affected his standing with the White House and in sort of the circle of advisors around Trump, which tends to be pretty tight. I think most Trump backers view uh, Giuliani as a, you know, certainly a political, if not a legal liability at this point. I think with the president, it's a little more complicated. You know, even after this came out, uh, the president uh, had a meeting at, at one of his golf clubs with uh, Giuliani, a private meeting and uh, vouched support for him. I think uh, Trump is always concerned uh, that people are going to turn on him and he has good reason to be. Look at Michael Cohen, uh, one of Trump's 
uh, previous personal attorneys uh, who was once a very diehard, devoted backer, I think, said he would take a bullet basically for, for, for the president. Until and, he didn't. And then he didn't. And then he began to sing and, and told stories that uh, are very unfavorable to the president and that he continues to seek to tell to this day, even as he sits in federal prison. And so uh, I think that the president has to have that in the back of his mind and is eager to stay on the right side of Giuliani, while I think perhaps you know turning down the simmer on this particular pot a little bit. So, Josh, where, where is the story going to go from here? What should we look out for next? So uh, I was just at the arraignment in New York of uh, Parnas and Fruman, these two Giuliani associates that have been indicted. Uh, one of the things to look for, uh, a lot of lawyers are telling me, is are those uh, fellows going to cooperate with the um, federal investigation? Uh, at the moment, uh, prosecutors have a, a lot of uh, transcripts of uh, phone calls, of emails, and sort of documents. Uh, whether they have access to all of them is a little unclear because you have the fact that Giuliani is an attorney and, and a lot of other issues that are very complicated, the fact that he was saying he was representing the president. Uh, but it would certainly be useful to prosecutors to have um, what they would view as an honest account from these uh, two men about what Giuliani uh, was doing. And if Giuliani was up to something here that was illegal, um, you know, maybe they could tell them where to look for uh, for information. And so uh, a lot of people are looking closely to see if those two fellows um, begin to cooperate with the government uh, and share more details about this uh, pressure campaign that they undertook with Giuliani. That'd be something to look for, uh, maybe not over the next few weeks, but certainly uh, over the next few months. That's so fascinating to me. And I think I think it's something, I don't know a ton about this stuff, but I know generally, like, you know, this is the way criminal investigations sometimes work. You try and work up the ladder, to, you try and get uh, some some pressure folks, maybe low, a little lower down to get someone bigger and bigger. And then, but at this, in this instance, you know, the, the chain of people is leading toward the, the president of the United States. And that's, that's uh, you know, with, uh, his own Justice Department, his in quotation mark, but you know the Justice Department that's part of the executive branch that he runs. Uh, it, it's crazy, right? And um, you know that puts the Justice Department in a very uh, tough spot. I mean, one way to look at this is there are sort of two different chains here. If you see as Giuliani is sort of the top figure that prosecutors might go after. Um, in that vein, something like a foreign agent's charge might be plausible uh, because you'd be showing that Giuliani was really working for um, a foreign government. Um, however, if if you're really looking to make a case against the president himself uh, over sort of dereliction of his duty, um, it might be cleaner to try to frame this uh, as more of a bribery uh, type case uh, and to to accept Giuliani's uh, version of the facts that uh, he was actually acting at the president's behest. That seems to make the president more guilty. Uh, there's a new mock indictment that just came out from a couple of um, former U.S. attorneys, uh, a mock indictment of Giuliani. And I thought it was really interesting. They focus on those sorts of crimes, the ones that arguably would link this more to the president and wrongdoing on the part of the president, rather than the notion that you had some kind of rogue cabal of individuals um, under the control of a foreign a foreign government, uh, which I think makes it harder to reach the president with those kinds of allegations. Interesting. You can take U.S. attorneys out of their office, but they're still going to keep writing indictments no matter what, I guess. You, you can't stop them. Even, even the libel laws seem to be uh, no obstacle. <laughs> Josh, thanks so much for giving us the lowdown. Uh, happy to do it. 
All right, for our second segment this week, we're going to get in the Halloween spirit and talk about some nightmares, specifically nightmare scenarios for uh, the two political parties heading into the 2020 election season. And we have a couple of reporters with us who kind of wrote on, on those scenarios a little bit this week, and we'll, we'll get into exactly what they are. But first, we'll introduce them. Darren Samuelson, senior White House reporter, is back with us on the Nerdcast. Darren, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me back. And Gabby Orr, also on our Politico White House team, also in the studio. Gabby, hi. Thanks for having me. All right. So, Darren, let's start with you. You wrote a, a, a big piece for the magazine this week, for Politico magazine, that, with a very simple title, What If Trump Wins? And you, you kind of stepped through uh, what you called the Politico time machine, and, and talked about this, the scene in 2021, basically, uh, in this democratic nightmare scenario where after uh, the four years of resistance, after attempted impeachment, after uh, the 2020 presidential campaign, when you got all these candidates running to succeed him in the White House, Donald Trump wins re-election. Yeah, dramatic moment that would be. And really, it's kind of the conventional wisdom right now. Uh, sure, there are polls that are showing Donald Trump losing to everybody right now. But if you were to jump forward to next November and Donald Trump has been acquitted in a Senate impeachment trial after a House impeachment trial and he's running on the victim card, he believes he would win. And, and what would that look like? So a lot of people that I have spoken with reporting just on impeachment and covering impeachment over the last uh, you know many months now, uh, I guess from the Robert Mueller investigation spinning into now the Ukraine scandal, have you know been, for lack of a better term, freaked out about what the other side of that would look like, that the system of checks and balances, the Constitution, all of that didn't work. Donald Trump you know, committed high crimes and misdemeanors. He's supposed to be impeached. He's not, and he's reelected. And, and you know, on the other side of that, you know, there's so many questions. You know, would Democrats try and impeach him again? Uh, and how many more times would they try and do that? Um, would Donald Trump in that scenario be uh, vindictive toward the Democrats, which clearly if he's in a second term, he would be um, you know, fighting a Democratic Party that would be very weakened uh, without a leader um, with uh, potentially, as I put it out in the story, Nancy Pelosi gone from the scene. He would have been campaigning against her. Um, so there'd be new fresh blood and they would be you know, fighting amongst themselves really for a message. And you know, for Donald Trump, I mean, we had some fun with the story talking about everything from uh, – uh, you know, ultimately pushing Ivanka Trump to run for president and knocking Mike Pence out of the way to uh, building a 75-story addition on top of the Trump Tower, excuse me, Trump Hotel in Washington, D.C., where his presidential library would go um, and, and basically shutting you down the government. You did have fun with this. Oh, yeah, shutting down <laughs> the government for six months and forcing Congress to pass a, uh, a change in the laws so that you could build a, a, a tall building in Washington, D.C. So, yeah, we had fun. But, you know, there was at the heart of this, the Democrats who were freaked out about the end of democracy as we know it if Donald Trump were to win. Well, there's a quote near, near the top that I thought was really interesting. And it's from Ari Fleischer, who was the press secretary in the George W. Bush administration, uh, who is largely supportive of Donald Trump. But, but here's what he had to say. I think it'd be very much like the first term with the risky exception that having survived impeachment and having been elected by the people, he might feel like the guardrails are even farther away from the road he travels. I'd hope he'd realize that the guardrails are there for a good purpose. And if he drives too fast, he'll crash through them. I mean, th that was a very interesting thought that just the, you know, we, we, the idea that we haven't seen what a fully emboldened Donald Trump looks like as president was a kind of an eye opening idea. I know. And, you know, what would that be? I mean, I think it would be Donald Trump that we've seen, but to the extreme. I mean, we, I don't know how much more 
off the rails things can get beyond trying to buy Greenland. I mean, I put in the piece, you know, that he uh, – we, we took it another step and said that he would have tried to sell Alaska to Putin in exchange for Putin offering more uh, help uh, in the next presidential election would be maybe the next place that he would go. But – yeah, I, I mean, man, you really you really went <laughs> went for it. We did. I mean, you know, it's fun. You don't get to do this that often. And and, and I will say that like the whole story was grounded in interviews with uh, two dozen plus people who agreed to kind of go into this future with me, and you know, game it out. Um, and so I heard a lot of oh, he's going to clean the house of the cabinet. Um, he's going to try and uh, negotiate, uh, you know, uh, a trade deal. Um, yeah, he's going to push the bounds on certain things. He's going to, you know, he's going to really uh, give it to the Democrats. And so, yeah, we definitely heard a lot of that kind of stuff from people. And then, obviously, we had some creative liberties. It's my time machine. I get to do with it what I want. And, you know, um, so, yeah, we had some fun, too. Gabby, I'm, I'm curious your perspective on this as as someone who's, who covers the White House, who's, who's there a lot, dealing with the reelection campaign, the, the people there. You've, you've watched the, the shift and in the Trump administration personnel-wise and and also in, in kind of how the president acts over the course of his first term. I mean, what do you think would be in store in, in a second term based on the, the conversations you have? I mean, I think, first of all, what Darren just said, many of the realities or, or I guess many of the, the potential scenarios that we might see under a second term of President Trump could actually become realities and we shouldn't discount them yeah. um, because of the craziness of it all. I mean, I'm just thinking this past week of Newt Gingrich suggesting that President Trump eliminate the White House press corps. I think that's something that he would try to do in a second term. He would just get rid of uh, even the the sort of helicopter talk that he does now. He just wouldn't talk to reporters and do whatever he wants to do. Um, there are a couple of other things that his administration and and White House officials who are notorious for sort of getting in his ear and planting these ideas that, that most people in D.C. would consider to be the crazier ones. People like Stephen Miller, uh, Ken Cuccinelli, uh, even, even folks like Kellyanne Conway who sometimes have the president's attention and, and really want him to go do something, they might be elevated to a point where they're actually getting those things done in a second term. Uh, I think that one of the main uh, concerns of his campaign heading into 2020 is that they've seen sort of what the chaos of the last three and a half years has done for a lot of his supporters. Um, If you talk to, to Trump voters just at campaign rallies, they'll say, of course, we love everything that he's done, but we wish that he wouldn't be tweeting so much. We wish that he wouldn't um, fire his cabinet secretary, secretaries willy-nilly and, and leave these people in pending acting positions. And so I think that they ultimately want to downplay um, that, that chaos that has happened over the last three and a half years and not even reference what could come of the next four years in terms of that kind of craziness. Well, let's let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, so we've just spent a few minutes here walking through this, this democratic nightmare scenario, um, which I think, uh, you know, maybe a lot of people haven't necessarily in- internalized yet that the, the, the possibility of Trump being reelected, which I think would, would just add an, another layer to that. On the flip side, Gabby, you've been deep into some research about the Republican nightmare scenario, about how Donald Trump could lose the 2020 election, maybe have it not even be that close because of the support he's been leaking from key constituencies. Right. I mean, his campaign continues to say this is going to be a landslide election. But if you look at the recent polling, and and let me just copy it by saying this, um, of course, the polling in 2016 was 
very off. And I think that we should be mindful of that. Even as we look, we look towards 2020, I know that there's a lot, been a lot of introspection and, and course corrections, but it's still important to sort of operate with that understanding. Um, but if you look at a lot of the polling, you will see that he's losing support among suburban women, college-educated white men and white men and white women. Uh, he's he's basically hemorrhaging support among uh, women in general, which is a group that he did actually well with in 2016, much to the surprise of a lot of Democrats. And non, then, non-college white women he non- did quite well with. And right. that's, that's really shrunk up. Well, and he also did well with college-educated white women, uh, which was a surprise to the Clinton campaign, certainly. Um, and the other thing that I've been looking at carefully is where white evangelicals stand with him, mm. because those are really considered you know, the main part of his base. He carried them with 81 percent support in 2016. They have obviously stood by him at every single point in his administration. Uh, when people thought that they would walk away after Axis Hollywood, they stayed with him. When they thought that he, they would walk away over his immigration policies, they stayed with him. There has never been a moment up until really the, the Syria announcement a couple of weeks ago where we saw evangelicals speak up with force against this president. And so if you look at the polling that's happened just in the last few weeks um, as as what, what the situation in Syria has been playing out, you're starting to see cracks in that. And I, I wouldn't say that it's significant and I wouldn't say that at any point over the next year uh, between now and 2020, we're going to see uh, President have that President Trump have some you know plummeting support among his white evangelical supporters. But there are signs that his campaign is paying attention to. Uh, absolutely. And that makes sense, right? I mean, he he won, I was just looking earlier, he won Wisconsin by, what, 23,000 votes. He won, we, you know, we've talked a lot about Pennsylvania, Michigan, all really, really close states. We're talking about very fine margins here. Yes. And this election will be won at the margins. I mean, people tell you that all the time, but it can't be more true. And, and that's where he really can't afford to lose the support. And, and the one thing that um, is important about evangelicals is he can't win the 2020 election with the same 81% that he carried with them in 2016 because he's lost so much support elsewhere. He actually needs to be growing that number up to about 83 to 85% of evangelicals. And right now we're seeing it trend in the opposite direction. So I think that is somewhat of a nightmare scenario for Republicans because that is really the only group that um, so far has just not walked away from the GOP. That's really interesting. And so again, you know, we we kind of went went down the, the the rabbit hole with Darren a little bit in the other way. And like, what what do what do Democrats do in the situation where Trump wins re-election? They're kind of like rudderless and, and confronting this. What do Republicans do if Trump loses? Or I think is there any way to think about that at this point without <laughs> uh, you know without causing a problem with with Trump, who, as we've written ad nauseum, con- controls the party very mm-hmm. tightly. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, there's quite a lot of Republicans who I think behind the scenes are asking themselves, okay, how do we position ourselves for Trump loss? And and where can we go as a party without him at the helm? Um, You've seen people like Josh Hawley putting forward some fairly interesting proposals, things that normally wouldn't be considered conservative or Republican orthodoxy. Um, Marco Rubio has talked a lot about this, Tom Cotton. I mean, all of the suspects that would likely run as Republicans in 2024. All the people 
people who were are, planning trips to Iowa in November right. 2016 and then exactly. kind of canceled them abruptly. <laughs> they're, they're starting to sort of look into this realignment of the Republican Party behind the scenes. Um, but as as Darren was talking about earlier, you know, uh, imagine a, a post-Trump presidency without Nancy Pelosi. Um, imagine a, a, the Republican Party post-Trump. I mean, it's so difficult to see where they go. I don't think that anybody could predict um, what the party will embrace in terms of its agenda and its platform and and who the next leader would be. I think it's hard as well to for the Republican Party to be thinking about this when they're in the midst of impeachment and the votes that are to come here in the House and in the Senate where this will be the question that they need to deal with right now. They're grappling with do they want to remove Donald Trump before the next election and do they want to have Mike Pence at the top of this ticket? Do they want to potentially – I hear over and over again that if Mike Pence is at the top of the ticket, Republicans are giving away the White House in 2020 and they're ready for whomever comes in from the Democratic Party. So they're kind of almost signing their death warrant if they do convict Donald Trump. But maybe they want to just rip the bandit off, get it over with, anticipating they're going to lose in 2020 no matter what with Donald Trump at the top of the ticket. So why not move it on quickly? You know, I mean there's even the scenario of, of a wide-open Republican primary next year because, you know – Trump is gone and, mm. you know, Cruz and Rubio and everyone's jumping in, you know, really quickly to try and, you know, grab that nomination next June over Mike Pence because they think they have a chance. Clearly, the Democrats will be coming back and swinging at them saying, well, you know, where were you guys four years ago? Why did you even, you know, drink the Trump Kool-Aid? So people are thinking about this stuff in the moment right now. Uh, and, yeah, clearly it would be kind of challenging to think about it in, in a post-Trump Lost scenario. But I'm very skeptical of that scenario. But that's the point, right? <laughs> yeah. We're talking about nightmares here. And I've, time machines. I, I've <laughs> even had people inside the White House joke, well, maybe it's better for Trump to lose in, in 2020 uh, for the Republican Party ultimately. I mean, people who work for him will say, you know, ultimately, if Republicans can have four years to talk about how crazy the, the Democratic um, party's policies are while they're in power, perhaps we can sort of regain our foothold on the Republican Party and come up with things that will appeal to those exact constituencies that I was talking about earlier who have left the party in waves. I, I don't think that if you ask the Trump campaign, they would agree with that. But there are people <laughs> inside this White House who, who have gamed out that scenario. Whoa. All right. Weird, wild stuff. Right. <laughs> Thank you both for being here. Darren, thank you, thank you so much for talking us through your story. Happy Halloween. And, uh, <laughs> and Gabby, thank you for sharing all those stats you pulled. Thanks. And as always, a big thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in this week. Our producer for this episode is Annie Reese. Dave Shaw is our executive producer. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Once again, thank you so much for listening. We'll talk again next week.